so Rwanda and Ethiopia, for example, which are basically African tigers now doing like 8% growth a year. I'm not sure there's a huge value add for charter cities there. Okay. Um, they're, already, uh, okay. they're already growing pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there is, I haven't looked into it in depth. Yeah. But the sort of ideal um, country for a charter city is probably like, right, one to 5,000 per capita GDP. If you're below 1,000, it's too chaotic to do anything. Um, with a reasonably stable government that is urbanizing rapidly. And if you fall into those criteria, then um, like right, 3% growth per year um, because the charter city can probably boost that up to like 6%. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, So what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Today I interviewed Mark Lutter, the executive director of the nonprofit innovativegovernance.org. They are a think tank dedicated to improving governance worldwide. And they believe that technological innovation and shifting cultural norms are creating the opportunity for new forms of governance, which can create the conditions for human flourishing. Their goal is to conduct research and outreach, which can be used to better understand these changes and create the intellectual, moral, and policy framework to ensure that the new forms of governance advance human flourishing to the greatest extent possible. Learned a lot about charter cities on this uh, on this podcast, particularly about how urban environments are a source of great strength, stress for people, but they are the way of the future as well. We're not moving back to the countryside anytime soon. We're moving to cities. So the more we can really put some intention and thought into how we build these cities and how those cities can support all actors in those cities, uh, the better we can provide for humanity as technolo- technology changes uh, the circumstances we're in fundamentally. Really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. Thanks. Have a great day. We're a think tank dedicated to creating the ecosystem for charter cities. The charter city being a uh, semi-autonomous city, so in, in, in legal terms, for example, Shenzhen, Dubai, Hong Kong and Singapore, and I think these projects are interesting and useful for their potential to alleviate global poverty and accelerate technological innovation. How can an autonomous city alleviate poverty? Um, so it's it's not the autonomy per se that alleviates poverty, it's a tool that is used for governance reforms. And so poor countries are poor because they have governments that are bad, and it's often very difficult to reform them on a national level. But if you take a greenfield site where there are relatively few special interests, you can get much deeper reforms than otherwise possible. And so, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, it takes on average about um, a little bit over 50% of per capita income just to legally register a business. Uh, And so that's clearly a barrier to entrepreneurship to growth. And if you can figure out a, a policy sort of hack around that, which a charter city can be, then that can create the space for, for some of this investment, job creation, and, and, and growth. 
and that's really interesting. I read on your website that you're talking about how the two main ways that governments listen to their people is by either if the people leave or if the people are uh, make their voices heard yeah. through voting or protesting and stuff yeah. like that. So this basically sets up a place inside of a nation state where people from that nation state can go to and essentially vote by their feet or people from other countries as well can come. Yeah, exactly. So this, this sort of voice and exit, um, I wouldn't say dichotomy because they're, they're compliments, they're not really substitutes. Uh, it comes from, what's his name? I think Albert Hirschman. Hirschman's definitely his name. Um, who's a well-known economist uh, who died recently in the last few years. Um, so he wrote a book, Exit, Lo- Voice, and Loyalty, um, where he outlined this sort of dichotomy between making your voice heard. This could be through traditional mechanisms like voting, but it could also be through protest, through writing angry letters. I mean, right, China, it's not a democracy, but people still make their voice heard on certain margins and um, exit. And uh, traditionally in the political sphere, we think about voice as a more important aspect in creating a political system that um, a desirable political system. But I think exit can play an important role too, because if people are able to, right, you have a large uh, one, just if there's a large community, voices are often not heard very well. And then two, you obviously have a disparity between sort of the powerful and connected versus the marginalized communities where the marginalized communities don't get their voices heard nearly as often. And if there's the opportunity for exit, then that one sort of puts pressure on the, 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 the rest of the area to step their game up and two allows this output, this outlet for um, for people. And one of the actual really interesting stories I recently read on Twitter, um, so Sears just went bankrupt. Uh, and this was apparently Sears in the sort of early 20th century was actually extremely beneficial for African-American families in the South. Because if you wanted to buy goods, you'd have to go to the local general store, which was run by white people. And so you would basically have to, one, pay huge amounts of deference to them because of this basically apartheid system back then. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it was just a personally uncomfortable experience combined with the fact that they probably wouldn't sell you certain goods just because of racism. It was entirely dependent on what the, the right personal preferences of the store owners were, which were generally racist um and so sears allowed for people to order things without interacting with this inherently bad system and sort of did an end run around around this this social structure that was very oppressive to um the african-american community and uh right this is sort of an example of a non-territorial function but it shows that on certain margins sort of the impersonality of the market gets around a lot of these local prejudices that keep down certain communities because, okay, if, if you're right, if you're in a small community, people's um, preferences tend to, to play a strong role in who they want to serve. But once you get this sort of big agglomerated market, people care about green mm-hmm. and people are willing to overlook green to the extent that even if it's not somebody they personally want to interact with because they've got this degree of separation and because the green speaks for itself, they're willing to to, to create that. And so um, I think charter cities can play a, a semi-analogous role in helping to hopefully get around, create this, 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 this system that's more responsive to sort of the, the voting by the feet of the community rather than the, the, the personal prejudices that people might have. Mm, interesting. Uh, and so you talked on your website about, uh, about 
Singapore, Dubai, Shenzhen being prototypical cities and prototypes of this kind of um, uh, new city movement, what do you call it? Uh, charter cities. Charter cities. Yeah. Uh, how have, but in the case of Shenzhen, it wasn't so much as, a, as an international framework, it was more of a national in China. Only people from China could move there unless they got visas from the Chinese government. How did that, how has that influenced the Chinese economy or how is that kind of, I don't know, uh, proved what you're talking about? Sure, so the, the story of Shenzhen, right? China was super poor and a bunch of people starved and then they killed all the intellectuals, sort of, right? The very high level overview, obviously missing context. Um, and uh, Mao died, and then after sort of a power struggle, Deng Xiaoping comes and um, um, takes over. And in 1980, he creates four special economic zones, one of which is Shenzhen. And the Shenzhen one is unique, partially due to location, partially it's much bigger than the others. And some sources suggest it had a greater degree of legal autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so a special economic zone is just an area of a country where the business, not all of the commercial law applies. So it could be something as small as lower corporate tax rates or it could be relatively drastic in terms of having an entirely different legal system. And, and Shenzhen didn't go as far as having a different legal system, but because the Chinese economy was so closed, the little the, the 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 marginal spaces it did to open up had a huge impact. So, for example, the first year of its existence, Shenzhen, the, the special economic zone in Shenzhen, attracted over all, over half of all foreign direct investment in China. Mm-hmm. Mind you, the Chinese population was 700 million people. So, this fishing village of 30,000 people attracts half of all foreign direct investment, and that is in a large part the story of. Chinese economic development, um, Shenzhen and the other special economic zones do very well. And then in 87, they declare a few more special economic zones, a few more. And now certain reports suggest that as much as 90% of the current population of China lives in some form of special economic zone or or, um, autonomous region. And so it shows how um, it wasn't international, but it did... um, one, also China actually has relatively stringent internal migration controls. I don't know how what to what role those played in the development of Shenzhen, mm. um, but it shows how with targeted governance reforms, it's possible to really transform a region. And you need some certain other factors. You need location. You need a, a population that's willing to move there on certain margins. But the, the trigger for those was really these, these governance reforms that helped transform China, lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And I think that, 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 that model of urbanization combined with uh, targeted territorial governance reforms can be, provide, can be, can be used in the rest of um, Asia and, there, and, and Africa as well mm-hmm. to, to hopefully, I mean, reaching Chinese success is probably not realistic, but even if you get half of Chinese success, which is right, 5% growth rates for 30 plus years, you're talking about tens of millions of people out of poverty. And so what is the closest thing we have to uh, what you're talking about, what your vision is right now, or what is the kind of project that has the most uh, chances of success? So there's a number of projects going on around the world right now. There's um, Blue Frontiers, which is a spinoff of the Seasteading Institute, is doing a project in French Polynesia. Mm where they signed a memorandum of understanding with the government there, and they're looking to create a, a floating sea zone. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting project, though I don't see that as the best hope because French Polynesia is pretty far away from everything, mm. so you've got a relatively high sea tax. 
Um, and the tax being essentially how much how expensive it is to get there. Yeah, and, basically yeah. the the increase in cost you need to to so it's not really on existing trade routes. Um, there's a new city being built in Kazakhstan. I did some consulting work on it about two years ago. Mm. Uh, and they have basically complete legal autonomy, but they don't really know what to do with it. Um, I was the only economist they invited, and they didn't invite me back. Uh, so I'm not particularly optimistic about that project. There is, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Niam, which is this new half-trillion-dollar city in Saudi Arabia. Interesting. Um, which is very interesting because they have fully embraced this governance and they actually have several Bay Area, like they recently announced their advisory board or maybe a week or two ago um, and they have a bunch of Bay Area connections. So Sam Altman, uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, uh, Travis Kalanick are all on the advisory board of, of NEOM. It's being built on the Red Sea. Maybe it, it, one report has it sharing land with both both Egypt and um, Jordan. Mm-hmm. Then my understanding is they haven't actually worked out the details of that land sharing arrangement. Mm-hmm. But they do seem to be relatively serious about these governance reforms, which causes me to be optimistic because in the greater Middle East for the last 20 or so years, everybody's wanted their own Dubai, but they think, okay, Dubai has these crazy buildings, so we need to hire architects without realizing that the buildings are the result of not the cause of the the, the, the growth and so I think Neom really shows that the some of these lessons have been learned on the other hand it's a half trillion dollars is just an absurd amount um, and given uh, future oil prices as well as the fact that Saudi Arabia is relatively urbanized so you're basically importing knowledge workers from Europe um, it, it strikes me as a little bit overly ambitious and is not the project I'd bet on um, and then you have a few other projects that are in, in, in stealth mode that I can't really comment on at this point. But I think the, 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 the place that's most interesting to me is Africa because it's urbanizing so rapidly. So you have the demand for new cities as well as um, relatively low starting governance points. So a lot of potential improvement. Uh, and I, I think that's hopefully that's where the most good can be done. And that's uh, where, where we see the most sort of action with charter cities. Mm. Um, and what about like something in California? It's just like is the is the regulation too stringent here to create something out in the desert, or like, or is it just not economically viable? Like what you're talking about with the sea tax or something like that? Um, I haven't looked into California in depth. Uh, I wouldn't. I would maybe by a loose definition of a charter city, you could say you would want to build one. So Irvine, California, for example, right? It's basically a private city. Interesting. Um, where uh, the, the developer owned the land and basically developed it and I think continues to own it. It's, I believe, a, a leasing model, not a freehold model. Um, and that's made a boatload of money. And with, I, I don't think in the U.S. you're going to get legal autonomy from the central government. That's almost certainly a bridge too far. Um, there are foreign trade zones in the U.S., but they're mostly basically export processing zones. So they have... Um, if I remember correctly, it's basically you can import the goods and then assemble them there in the zone and then you ship them out, you ship them to the rest of the U.S. And so it's taxed on the assembled unit, not on the mm-hmm. right different parts. And that leads to a tax advantage. Um, but you're not really going to get meaningful autonomy from the central government. You might be able to do a end run around... Um, uh, for example, like the the whole NIMBY stuff and make it so you can actually like legalize housing in 
in one of these charter cities. Uh, there was a recent article on Slate's Star Codex by Scott Alexander about this idea. I don't know that geography would want to be next to a major population center, at least like right in the like clear transportation path of it. Um, and you still face the sort of local and regional government challenges of making sure you have all the proper approvals. Though in, I don't know about California particularly, but in some US states, it's relatively easy to incorporate a new city. Mm. Is there anything going on in Mexico? Um, Mexico has a special economic zone law, but no. So I, I differentiate between special economic zones, which is just like any degree of legal autonomy from the central government, and a charter city, which is substantial legal autonomy. And charter uh, special economic zones also tend to be single industry focused. Mm-hmm. And so a charter city is one, it's the city. You want multiple industries, you want residential, multi use. Um, and a much more dynamic system to really create the foundation for economic growth. Mm-hmm. I've had some discussions with um, officials in the Mexican Special Economic Zone Department, and they, they express sympathy for these ideas. But as of now, the legislation on the books um, uh, isn't there, and it's not one of the. I mean, I'm, my bandwidth is pretty restricted, so it's not one of the high priorities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So let's talk more about that, your bandwidth and kind of the stress you're facing as you're building what you're building, um, which is essentially like you're trying to sway policy uh, about how to think about charter cities and how to start building them. And to set the framework, it's like this seems like a problem that not many people know that exists, but might become very big problem very soon um, so that that it's something that most people are not even in their their heads. Um, How do you deal with the stress of trying to build something which most people don't even think is a problem? Um, I think it's awesome. <laughs> so that helps. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is uh, quite stressful. I mean, I haven't paid myself yet. I've raised enough to cover expenses and I should be able to pay myself for October, assuming the checks that were promised come in. Mm-hmm. But I mean, right, like I, I'm not rich. I'm living in a studio apartment and somebody got murdered on my block last year, right? Oh, like, yeah. uh, but I really like what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my life is fucking awesome. I travel to cool places. I talk to awesome people. Huh. Um, and I get to put together something that I deeply believe in. And so that's really the motivator and I, I don't think I have any particularly effective mechanisms for dealing with stress. About a month ago, we had our first event in San Francisco. And because I'm currently the only team member, I organized most of it. I mean, we had a, it was a, the, the venue did a lot of the stuff, right? Like all the food, so I didn't really have to deal with a bunch of individual vendors, which was hugely helpful, but still like all the speakers and all of that. And I remember the day after the event, I was like, huh, what's this feeling? I don't have this like, gnawing thing in the back of my mind like what's going on Uh and I was like oh my god I was like way more stressed out than I thought I was Uh and so I mean I'm looking forward to building up a team and sort of right like figuring out my workflow in such a way that I'm not trying to juggle 15 balls and I can like juggle three of them and then delegate the other balls to Mm -hmm. people who are more able to care for that Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's it's I, I really, really enjoy what I do, and that helps a lot. What's the most interesting conversation that you can talk about that you've had in the last, like, month um, about charter schools? So, let me think. Um, 
I mean, the problem is most of them, they're really interesting ones. I can't, aren't public, yes. Uh, so one of the common ones is in Silicon Valley, I've had this conversation multiple times where somebody says, I'm building up a war chest, mm-hmm. so when I exit, I can go build a city. Um, there's a pretty strong interest in city building. You have uh, Seasteading, you had Y Combinator about two years ago said, we want to build a city. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have Sidewalk Labs at Google. Mm. And I don't think any of these projects have really gone as hoped. Um, I think Sidewalk Labs is one of the biggest missed opportunities with Google's resources and, mm. and, and sort of reach. Instead, they're just basically redeveloping this waterfront in Toronto and putting a bunch of sensors, which is cool, mm-hmm. but it's not exactly transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so what... What I'm trying to do in a lot of the conversations are basically bringing that energy and that enthusiasm, that entrepreneurial talent to some real estate projects in the real world, um, to government officials who, people who are able to sort of like draft the legislation for legal autonomy and, and uh, for, for a charter city and, and, and things like that to really... Um, expand the, the, the community and and have that uh, be a thing mm-hmm. interesting and so like in your in your mind what does a charter city look like what does a successful charter charter city in 30 years look like uh, that's autonomous from a legal standpoint and you know what are people eating how are people living uh, what's going on in that city so I think it would, I mean, so I don't think it would be complete legal autonomy. Ideally, you get legal auto- autonomy in commercial law, but you still want to be part of a host country. You don't want, you don't want sovereignty per se. Mm. Um, what does it look like? It depends on where mm-hmm. and depends on what the goals are. If you're in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and it depends on what country in sub-Saharan Africa, right? There's vastly different countries have vastly different levels of, of economic development. Mm-hmm. But let's say Kenya, I think Kenya's per capita GDP is probably a little under $2,000 a year. So what does it look like in 30 years? Um, I would take a semi-functioning Italian city, right? Like Italy's GDP is what, like 20,000, 25,000, I think. Um, Maybe a Greek city uh, and say, all right, that's sort of the goal, 30, 40 year goal, where you want it to be solidly middle income, maybe like lower upper income country as to what the people eat. I think they'd eat the same thing. I mean, like they'd eat probably very similar to what they eat now with probably, you probably get more sort of international immigrants, so more like ethnic food. Um, but I don't, I, I think that the dietary patterns would would it follow sort of the normal dietary patterns of the city on a high growth path. Um, so this is essentially a way of taking economies that are already high growing and then creating a zone where they can then grow faster. Or no, not, not really high growing. I don't think there's so Rwanda and Ethiopia, for example, which are basically the African tigers now doing like 8% growth a year. I'm not sure there's a huge value add for charter cities there. Okay. Um, they're, already, uh, okay. they're already growing pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there is, I haven't looked into in depth. Yeah. But the sort of ideal um, country for a charter city is probably like right one to five thousand per capita GDP. If you're below one thousand, it's too chaotic to do anything. Um, with a reasonably stable government that is urbanizing rapidly, and if you fall into those criteria, then um, in like right three percent growth per year, um, because the charter city can probably boost that up to like six percent. Um, maybe eight or ten, depending on how well run the charter city is. Uh, 
Um, but it's sort of right these stagnating or low growth, low and middle income countries to, that I think are due to like systemic corruption or something. Like yeah, or or bad legislation, bad courts. I mean, uh, corruption is certainly part of it. But mm-hmm. the economic literature is actually relatively interesting because it shows that corruption usually isn't a binding constraint on economic growth. Mm-hmm. If you think about the U.S., uh, the U.S. in the 19th century was corrupt as hell. And we still grew reasonably rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's other, usually, like, you know, there are different kinds of corruption. So it's a complex discussion. But I think corruption is usually a little bit overrated as a cause of uh, stagnation. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, and so that's really interesting. Do you, a lot of people now are moving away from Silicon Valley because they are seeing it as a place where the culture has become too enclosed and too kind of uh, too intolerant of new ideas. Uh, would these people find something of value in a charter city like this, or is that more, or is it more for people in in, in Africa or India or in in these? Like, would somebody from Silicon Valley want to move to this charter city that's being built in Kenya? Um, probably not. Uh, I, I think I differentiate between two types of charter cities. One I call the Shenzhen model, and the other is the Dubai model, mm. or the Singapore model. Okay. So the Shenzhen model is basically, it's uh, high labor-intensive, low human capital jobs. Um, so a lot of industrial factories and it works its way up the supply chain like that starting with maybe garments um, then to furniture like right um, sort of uh, early like parts of like right manufacturing different car car parts that aren't particularly um, uh, 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 right like complex and then sort of moving up like that and in one of those examples which I think there's the opportunity for a lot um, those aren't going to attract most sort of right like high human capital people, whether from Silicon Valley or New York or wherever. Mm-hmm. There might be space for a few in terms of like high level management and maybe going over there for design trips. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think you see right now you see Shenzhen attracting some of those, but Shenzhen in the eighties I don't think was attracting many of those. So like Singapore is probably the one. That- attracting the most of them, right? Yeah, and so I think Singapore, Dubai, both of those are high human capital, right? Like low labor-intensive types, service-type jobs. And so I think there is the opportunity for those. And you you probably, like, right, you, you, you're you not going to get as many Shenzhen, as many Dubai models as Shenzhen models. You might have one or two more Dubai models in, like, North Africa, maybe one in Sub-Saharan, and, mm-hmm. like, one, two, maybe three in, in Latin America, mm-hmm. depending on mm-hmm. how productive they are. Mm-hmm. And those models, I think, would attract some sort of Silicon Valley high human capital types. Yes, I think particularly in Latin America. Um, what do you think about these kind of, like, what Burning Man is essentially a city, a charter city that is only exists for one week in its physical incarnation, but then the cultural incarnation then goes back to the rest of wherever they came from and kind of spreads. What is What about these kind of, like, virtual or non- or time-limited charter cities and stuff like that? Um, my interest in charter cities is mostly as a tool of right, um, successful institutional change, not really culture. Culture is a little bit more upstream than what I spend most of my time thinking about. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, I go to Burning Man. I've been five years in a row. I, it's a part of my life that I value pretty highly. I mean, I come from D.C. It's a bit more difficult than if you're living in the Bay. Um, but I th- don't... I mean, I think there, there's certainly some lessons in terms of, right, like building a community early and the, the, the culture. I mean, you don't want to, right, like a unique exchange in a city. Um, the, the sort of, right, like no exchange, only a gifting economy only works with mm-hmm. a very limited time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some, like, ideas in terms of openness, in terms of inventiveness that I think, in terms of playfulness, that I, I think are generally good norms that should be embraced. Um, more widely, but more so than a charter city, I think of Burning Man as just a, a type of festival. Um, and there are certainly things to be learned from those types of festivals, but I think their application for charter cities broadly is is um, just a little bit limited. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is kind of... Um Would you want to live in a city like this, in a charter city? Or? Yeah, um, I think it, de- it depends on where and what the what it is, uh-huh. um, and as well as like what stage of my life I'm in. Okay. Um, but I mean, I, like I would, I'd like to live. I, Dubai is super interesting. I like the people in Dubai. It's the only place I've been where the people think bigger than Silicon Valley. Right, I live in D.C. People don't think big in D.C. It's there's a lot of sort of right like the minutia of politics, mm-hmm. but the amount of high level vision is pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of people with like very big high level visions that are trying to execute at different margins. I mean, in Dubai, I've heard people use the term moonshot or no Mars shot unironically. Oh, in because, Dubai, there, yeah, no because moonshot is right. That, that's for cowards. Yeah, Mars shot <laughs> is where it's at now. Uh-huh. Um, and right, it's on, on some level, it's just like, oh, this is like silly. But on another level, it does show that they are really trying to like push the frontier on these margins. At the same time, like Dubai is a, in terms of spatial organization, it's just terrible. It's the giant highway with hotels on it. Um, and so it's miserable, like walkable cities um, in Dubai would be miserable living from that angle. But uh, if you could somehow take some of the sort of cosmopolitan, big thinking culture of Dubai and transplant it into a... A, a city that is more aesthetically my style, then yeah, I'd be very happy to live in something like that. Have you spent much time in cities like Brasilia or Chandigarh, which yeah. are cities designed by Le Corbusier, who's this French architect who essentially uh, created a, a city based off of what he thought a city would, would urban kind of what a city should look like and stuff like that? They're horrible to live in because I lived in Chandigarh, India for nine months, and it's this place that's just kind of like you soulless yeah. and, and devoid of any sort of like sense of, of aesthetic uh, beauty or anything like that. I, I've not been there. I'm not familiar with Chandigarh, but I am familiar with Brasilia. Um, I have beef with urban planners uh-huh. and architects. Uh, in my experience, there's a small amount of them. Right, everybody says they, they're like, we read Jane Jacobs. We know the the like why why Brazilia didn't work. Blah blah blah. And then it's like okay, let's plan a city. And then they go to the drawing board and like plan out every single detail. Uh-huh. And it's just like oh, you say you learned the lessons, but it feels like it's just lip service. If you're gonna go and do the exact same thing he did, except now it's you doing it instead of him. Uh-huh. Um, and I see this with um, master planned cities of which depending on how you want to count Wade Shepard who's a journalist who writes on this topic estimates there's 200 in the world right now um, and I think the master planned cities tend to be over planned 
Uh, some of them aren't, right? If you're building in the in the growth path of like Delhi, then okay, you can do a 200,000 person suburb just because the scale is already so huge that that isn't. But a 200,000 person suburb, right? Like the scale at which you plan, if the, the main city is million people, then if you're master planning 200,000 person suburb, then it is gonna be soulless because, right, you don't have that scale. So you need to sort of work with what, and, and so figuring out, I think that the challenge is, right, figuring out what is the proper right decision-making level for different decisions. And for some things in terms of airport or in terms of um, uh, like utilities, like water, electricity, that's a pretty high level of decision-making where you don't want like a bunch of different utilities just because of the massive economies of scale involved. Um, in terms of things like roads, you probably want, not the, you, you still want a relatively high level, maybe not as high as like the airport and everything. Right, because some places, New York is a grid, and the grid works really like that. That works reasonably well, but European cities, especially the old towns, where it's just like right, winding streets that you get lost in are are, are lovely, um, and and those emerge a little bit more organically. And then when you're thinking about all right, like where to put houses, what should the houses look like? Um, where to put the hotels? Where to but the business district, uh, sort of the, the market, all of that, those should be, all those decisions should be made at a relatively low level. Mm-hmm. And I think currently there's, nobody's really figured out that happy medium. You've got the mega real estate developers that tend to overplan, and then you've got just the sort of like chaotic building that there is basically no planning, um, which you see very often in Africa. Um, yeah, where the, it, there's there's no public spaces, there's no like the, the sewage just runs in the streets, and and so I think there is hopefully the discussion will move towards what's sort of the optimal medium of planning and what are these dis- different decision making units and what heuristics can we use in thinking about how to apply them at different levels. Is your center going to be responsible for actually helping to build the cities, or is it only a policy? Um, no, I'm really lazy. <laughs> and so my goal is to bring people together and have them do all the work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see ourselves as a coordinator. Uh, I think our primary value add is this pretty high level vision and then this 30,000 foot air support. So, so to take a step back, I think the primary barrier to charter cities is politics. Mm-hmm. It's that politicians don't really understand them and don't pass legislation. Mm-hmm. And it's actually not that hard to get politicians excited about it mm-hmm. because this is a new shiny project that they can take credit for. Yeah. And so that's good, but it's the advisors who don't really fully understand it, who are often, to some extent, the, the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our goal is to right, create these Charter, the content of charter cities in terms of like what the legislation looks like, um, what are the ideas behind it, as well as the presentation in a way that can appeal to politicians and their advisors to help remove these uh, these these barriers, to remove the political barrier, and at the same time we're doing that to create the ecosystem in terms of entrepreneurs, real estate developers, um, financiers, investors. Uh, and and sort of the technocrats consultants to be able to execute on the ground because right silicon valley is a pretty developed ecosystem building up so if you get in a high growth company there's a bunch of senior vps you can hire who have been through it once or twice who can sort of handle that shit but if you are building out the, the transaction costs of finding these people are low which is part of the reason why even with sort of high taxes and human feces and needles on the streets the silicon valley is still silicon valley 
Um, but this ecosystem hasn't really been created for charter cities. So one, there's just less understanding of like what it is. And then two, there, if you want to hire the person who can craft a legal system from scratch, who is that? Um, I mean, I know the guy, but right, like mm-hmm. there's only one guy right now. <laughs> uh, and so, all right, if you want to hire a mega real estate developer to right, like build out a 50,000 person suburb in the growth path in an existing city, how many companies have experience with that? Yeah. And those experience, those companies tend to be relatively like geographically um, restricted. So, all right, like, you, you, can you help them like kind of? Can you take somebody from Irvine or something like that and take them to Africa and like connect them with the right people? Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, basically. Um, trying to, I mean, there's some entrepreneurs in Africa, there's lots of entrepreneurs in Africa to try to, I've had this discussion with somebody who's building a new city. He's like, I would like, I would like to turn it into a charter city, like legal autonomy, but I don't know how. Mm-hmm. I don't know the capacity. And I was like, well, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I see a lot of this mutual learning, a lot of these sort of talents that simply people aren't aware of, or if they are aware of, don't know how to find. Yeah. And um, I think by taking this like 30,000 foot role for both political legitimization as well as coordination, it's possible to get this ecosystem started and and built up much more quickly than if you have a bunch of siloed projects with no learning from each other. How would you kind of, because if what you're doing becomes more popular, particularly at this time in, uh, in our kind of uh, the way people express their opinions, uh, how would you kind of deal with the criticism that you're a colonialist or that you are colonizing or you're supporting colonialism? I mean, I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not building the projects. Um, we try to find local entrepreneurs uh, to work on the projects. I think that helps blunt a lot of the issues. Uh, two, these are different because they're opt-in, so we're not forcing change on anybody. We're providing people with You're another. You're not going into a city that already exists and. No. You're creating a new city. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to changes in existing cities, but I think to do that, you need supermajority of the population. Right? Anytime there's a large institutional change, you want a supermajority. Um, and so if there, there would have to be a conscious vote by the people to embrace that change. Um, I think the, the Greenfield projects are much easier, and that's what I focus on. And there, mm-hmm. people have to opt in to say, I want to live in this new system. Mm-hmm. And so you're providing them with an opportunity. And two, right, even if there are entrepreneurs from developed countries who are going in to help develop these projects, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at, right, there's been brain drain from a lot of developing countries for a long time, and okay, it's if I'm a if I'm a low income country and suddenly Silicon Valley's best and brightest are coming to me to mm-hmm. build cities, right? Like yeah. that's awesome. Um, what, that's, do you think, what do you think about what's going on right now in Puerto Rico with all the crypto? Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Uh, I I don't. I'm I'm not sure exactly what they're doing. It, <laughs> well, they're they're getting. Uh, I'm not sure they know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure they're. No, they know what they're doing either. Beyond the the, the tax breaks. Yeah. Um. I mean, I hope they can sort of do some stuff to help the locals, but they're they're not really, right? There 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 isn't the the social value add aspect. At least that's not. That might be a second order aspect. Mm-hmm. I hope it's a second order aspect, but it doesn't seem to be a first order aspect. Yeah. The first order aspect is just low taxes. Yeah. Um. Which sure, I'm not going to complain. That's a value. Like that's people's right to to do. Yeah. Um, 
but there isn't, and then they're trying to justify this by a sort of second order effect of um, uh, of, tr- of trying to help people. But it's it seems pretty clear that that's not their their priority. Um, and so you want to find a way to align uh, uh, private benefit with social benefit. So when people or social benefit with private. So when people undertake private self-interested actions that are those are socially positive actions those are socially value-adding actions Mm -hmm. and i think charter cities are an effective way to potentially do that by because the the developer if there's a real estate developer they can get super rich by right they're they're building a new city and then they can be sponged to soak up like right a fraction of a percent the economic value of that city Mm and then the way that they increase the economic value of that city is by attracting people to that city and by boosting the per capita incomes of the people that live there. Mm-hmm. And so that creates them, even though it's a for-profit motive, that, that, that incentive leads to very socially beneficial actions where the developers are well, not capturing all of it, but there's all of these positive spillover effects to the residents, to the businesses, as well as nearby communities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, are there any cryptocurrency or blockchain uh, projects that have any interest whatsoever in, in crypto, I mean, in charters, charter cities? Or? Yeah, there's a bunch. Um, these ideas are pretty popular in this space. Uh, so Tezos, for example, their Mars shot was to buy sovereignty, mm. which is not exactly a charter city, but yeah. is, is um, I met uh, Arthur like seven years ago at a conference in Roatan. Uh-huh. And I mean, he probably doesn't remember who I am, but... Um, uh, so I've, I, you have Roger Ver, for example. He also right, created a website, I think, freesocieties.com.org, where he wants to, he's like raising $100 million to buy sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I think most of these projects are not realistic and arguably like is sort of detrimental to the community a little bit because I don't think they have thought through the political or the governance aspects of these projects sufficiently for me to want to like back them or even get more involved depending on the level of involvement I have. So I view charter cities as having three extremely complex components. One is basically multi-billion dollar or hundreds of millions of dollar real estate development, which is already that's pretty complex. Two is politics. You need the government to pass legislation that says like within this area you have legal autonomy and commercial law. That's really, really hard and that hasn't been done before to that extent where you have um, I mean it's been done on different margins mm-hmm. um, but like not since 1945 uh, well so Dubai for example right they passed legislation they created the Dubai International Financial Center where they brought in a common law judge uh-huh. um, because they're like Islamic law does not very conducive to finance so let's just use the British law instead mm-hmm. that was quite successful but Right, the Middle East is a weird political organization. It's basically a bunch of family offices, so you don't run into these political challenges because mm-hmm. if the family head says, I want X, then you get X. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of the political challenges of this, I mean, you have legislation in Honduras that allows for this, but they've only, um, the rumors are they've just started approving projects, uh, but none of them have gone public yet. Um, and and then the third part is governance. And so governance is, okay, you have this legal autonomy. How, how do, we, do we create a governance system that is leads to, right, like aligns private incentive with social beneficial, beneficial out, mm-hmm. outcomes? And this is 
very hard. Um, I mean, you can sort of cut and paste from existing systems, but then there's a lot of stuff to be worked out. And so I don't think it's right to think about this in the traditional startup like right framing of move fast and break things. And I think a lot of crypto people have that mental model, which I don't think really applies to charter cities. And so I'm a little bit, I guess, worried that uh, some of these projects could lead to high profile failures that if they'd fail to really investigate some of these important aspects. Um, I mean, I hope they're successful, right? I hope all these projects are successful. I'm a big tent person. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that they, um, if, if, they, if they move too quickly or if their social theories about what governance looks like um, don't work, then you, you, it, it, the, the outcome is, is quite negative. Mm. And um, for you personally, why did you, why is this, how long have you been thinking about this? Why did you get into it? What, what are your motivations for doing it? Like, what, why this? Um, I've been thinking about this for around eight or nine years. Uh, I got into this because I was, I had applied to graduate, I'd gotten to graduate school and I was starting in the fall and I heard a talk by Ben Powell who mentioned Michael Van Notten, who was a Dutch lawyer who was trying to build a free city in Somaliland. Mm. And I was like, that's a great idea because I was 20 or 21 and like very rational. Yeah. Um, it actually kind of is. This is a long story. I'll go into it because it's funny. <laughs> um, so he married into a uh, Dutch lawyer, married into a uh, uh, Somali clan. Um, so had reasonably good connections and they're actually basically building a similar project uh, called uh, by Dubai Ports World in Berbera uh, Dubai Ports World is one of the most reputable port companies in the world um, they're, everybody's building out the Red Sea now um, and they are going to have a free zone, I haven't seen any like legislation to see what degree of autonomy it has um, but that's a thing that is happening in mm-hmm. Somaliland is different from Somalia, Somalia mm-hmm. right? It broke off in 91 after the dictatorship collapsed and now they've had free and fair, fair elections since like 95 or 96. Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite stable and one of the, uh, it's sorry, people hear Somalia and are like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got me into it. I did a PhD at George Mason in economics, uh, studied with Tyler Cowen, Don Boudreau, Richard Wagner. Um, and as for why, I I mean I'm, I'm, I'm I identify to a certain extent as an effective altruist, and I think this is one of the most understudied and under um, sort of thought about research areas. Governance is the most important determinant for long-term economic outcomes, and charter cities are an effective like leverage point for changing governance. And I think it is possible to help lift tens of millions of people out of poverty by sort of getting this ball rolling. And once it's rolling, right, the profit motive kicks in and profit is a hell of a drug. So you'll see lots of replication. Um, But if I can help accelerate that by a few years, I mean, I pay for my life 10 times over. And so we got a couple minutes left. What is kind of the most interesting article, idea, or concept, or book that you've read uh, that has helped you kind of deal with stress and be more creative in your life? over the past like 30 days or oh man I don't know <laughs> um, what is the most interesting book or article you've read uh, most interesting book I read last I don't know year is probably Three Body Problem okay. which is Chinese science fiction yeah. 
um, because it actually it, it paints a high level view of like right the value of human progress as well as some relatively interesting like Straussian readings of one Chinese history and um, to the value of different forms of political organization for creativity. Um, actually, the best thing I have to deal with stress is Burning Man. <laughs> uh, I what come, does Burning Man give you, Claire? What is what, what a Peace. Uh-huh. Interesting. I come back and for a month after, it's mostly worn off by now, but I'm like, right, less anxious, happier, uh, more at peace. Are you able to build community in D.C. based off of meeting people at Burning Man? No, I haven't. I'm not really in the DC burner community. Okay. Um, I find the tech burner community more interesting anyway mm-hmm. because I like big ideas. Yeah, weirder conversations. Uh-huh. Um, right. I find DC con. I, there's a lot of people I like in DC, and there's a lot of good conversations. But it just the, the sort of focus tends to be a little bit more narrow. And then because the community of people who are interested in things I'm interested in is naturally smaller then the amount of overlap with burners is also then smaller and combined with the extra cost of coming out here and like right lower average incomes and everything it means that just the um, like the burner community that aligns with my interests there is not that big interesting how, so if people are really interested in this kind of charter city movement, how can people talk to you or find you? And uh, So you can go to our website, innovativegovernance.org. Um, find us on Twitter. Uh, I think it's Innov or Inno Governance. Innov, I-N-N-O-V Governance or I-N-N-O Governance. Um, you can, we've got a Facebook page, Innovative Governance. Uh, you can shoot me an email, mark at innovativegovernance.org. Um, we have a newsletter. You can sign up on the uh, the, the website. Um, and yeah, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Sweet. Thank you. Success. That's really interesting. Sweet. Hopefully your 